Welcome to Talking Infrastructure, the fortnightly podcast brought to you by global infrastructure company, ACOM. In this series, we'll be discussing the hot topics, key projects and innovations that are helping to solve some of the world's most complex infrastructure challenges. Hello and welcome to ACOM's Talking Infrastructure podcast. My name's James Banks and I'm ACOM's Head of Marketing and Communications in Europe and India. This episode is the recording of an ACOM event that took place at the 2022 Labour Party conference in Liverpool. The title of the panel was Going Green, Going Local, The Power of Local Leadership in Achieving Net Zero and Leveling Up. Featuring ACOM's Helena Rivers and guests, it was chaired by the Right Honourable Ruth Kelly, Senior Fellow of Economics and Social Policy at Policy Exchange. We have a fantastic event lined up for you today, going green, going local. I don't think we could have come across anything more topical than greenery, which is you know, one of the themes of Labour Party Conference to get today. And of course, local as well, with the first reports coming out of, uh, of Gordon Brown's Constitutional Commission, suggesting much greater devolution, both to the countries and regions of the United Kingdom, but also to the cities and, and regions of the United Kingdom as well. Our panel today has gone through a number of changes. I am incredibly grateful for the people we have uh, here with us uh, today. Baroness Chapman, unfortunately, has been struck down with, with COVID. And at the last minute, we are unbelievably uh, grateful to have Jamie join us uh, today. So, Jamie Driscoll, Mayor of North of Tyne was elected Mayor of the North of Tyne Combined Authority in May 2019. Decarbonisation and green jobs and skills have been a, a huge part of your morality, and we look forward to hearing a lot about that today and what you think you need to be even more successful in uh, the North of Tyne. We have um, Paul Ormerod with us uh, today, who's an economist as well as senior fellow at uh, Policy Exchange and a, currently a visiting professor in the computer science department at, uh, at UCL. He's also a partner in the economics consultancy Volterra. He's written many books on economics, some of which have even become bestsellers. So, Paul, we're very fortunate to have uh, you with us today. We have uh, Helena Rivers, who is Director of Estates Decarbonisation from ACOM. ACOM is our sponsor today. Tell us a little bit more about ACOM and some of the work that you do as part of this. And uh, hopefully we're going to have a bit of a debate about uh, about local infrastructure and how it's necessary to improve transport infrastructure in the north of the country, because I have just heard that the train has that Andy Burnham has been, was due to be on has been cancelled this morning. And therefore, we will be lucky to see him before the end, although I've no doubt that he is trying his best to get here uh, before the end. So apologies, everyone, for Andy not being with us at the start of this event. Um, but thankfully, we have another brilliant <laughs> Labour mayor with us today, Sir Jamie. So thank you so much for joining us. So I am going to start by asking each of the panellists to speak for, you know, four or five minutes or so. Uh, to introduce um, their thoughts on going green, going local, what is really needed to transform uh, the local economies of the country. Uh, and then I'll open it to, to questions. And Jamie, I think you have to leave bang on 9.45, don't yeah. you? So um, we'll try and wind up by then too. Thanks. Jamie, over to you. Thank you very much, Ruth. Yeah, the irony that we're talking about green infrastructure and the panellists can't even get here from Manchester. <laughs> I don't think it's going to be lost on people. Um, the economic strategy that we've adopted in the north of Tyne is zero carbon, zero poverty. And they are not separate policy objectives. They, it's a unified economic <coughs> strategy. 
there's when we talk about the green economy, there's those aspects which are decarbonization. So moving from high carbon energy generation, manufacturing, to then there's also the low impact forms of growth. So in the, the Northeast have brought in nine large digital companies, we're creating thousands of jobs in that sector. Um, and exporting over the internet. So you can still get green growth. We don't tend to think of that when we talk about the green economy, but it is actually where a lot of high paid jobs are coming from. And the digital infrastructure is just as key. I represent not only the city of Newcastle upon Tyne and the conurbation, also represent all the way up to Berwick and rural Northumberland. And you've got places up there where you're lucky if you can get a phone signal, never mind high speed broadband. And so we've been working um, with DCMS to roll out full fiber broadband to every public building in Northumberland so that local market solutions can at least connect to homes in the village because no one was going to be willing to put in the, the cost to cover 15 miles of, um, well, basically where sheep live. Um, so the other thing to the side of it is the, we've set up something called a time task force because it's great to see the announcement from the Labour Party that we're going to go for 100% clean energy generation by 2030. Woohoo! Um, I've been asking to announce things like that for quite a while. Um, and we're one of the places where this stuff will be made. We have um, the old Swan Hunter shipyard site, which stopped work <coughs> uh, about 15 years ago um, and has been derelict. We've cleared it, the space. We're working with companies to set up those new industries in not just uh, offshore wind, but floating wind, which we can export around the world. <coughs> uh, we have infrastructure there like the testing facility, the Oric Catapult, which tests these huge turbine blades. And if you haven't seen them, they are monumental. The blades are 120 meters long, um, and you, you, that's the length of a football pitch. Um, it's, it's amazing. And you need the infrastructure to test these things because if you're going to put a, a four billion pound installation in the middle of the <coughs> North Sea and you've got to convince the power grid that it's not going to knock out the entire, um, British electricity grid if it goes wrong. Well, you want to be damn sure of the work. So that's the sort of thing that brings the intellectual property here. So we don't just get the jobs in operation and maintenance. We get the manufacturing in time. We've reopened the, or are reopening. It will reopen in uh, December 23, but it's all signed off and funded. The Northumberland line, that's an old freight line. Ashington, uh, an old coal field town, 20 miles north of Newcastle. Very deprived in terms of all the statistics. And this reopens it, comes through Blythe Valley, into <coughs> Newcastle, and it's that opportunity, particularly for young people there, who otherwise have no way of getting into Newcastle for work or college or education without long and expensive bus journeys. And we're developing that economic corridor with a master plan. So we're only putting £10 million in, it's going to leave another £130 million in. And this is about the factory sites and the housing, and crucially, of course, that green infrastructure that is a railway line. At the moment, Unfortunately, that's going to be a diesel train. But when we get control of transport in the north, that's when we can have hydrogen and electrified trains on that line. And British Volt, the big battery manufacturer, is going to be, what is, being built along that corridor already. So how are we doing these things? Well, we have a Green New Deal front. So to give one example, there's a, a, a local firm, it's a foundry. They want to bring their energy bills down. <coughs> They don't have, from cash flow, the ability to invest in a load of solar panels on their roof. They've got the business decision to be investing in their core kit and growth. 
So we make extra capital available to them, which they pay back from the savings that they make by putting solar panels. So that's the sort of um, examples that we can do. We have an innovation recovery deal that's working with small firms. And this is one of my favorite examples. <coughs> There's a, a company called Saddle Skedaddle that do cycling holidays. And through COVID, they struggled. And they do bespoke holidays for people to go around the world cycling. And um, they were struggling. They wanted to double their turnover. But they it took them about four hours to put a personalized itinerary up because the people, all sorts of documents. We set them up with a computer system and a software system to do it for £10,000. It's doubled their turnover. They've employed two new people. And I think I'm more excited about those two new jobs because that shows the organic growth that's just as important as getting big ones in. And working with a company called Merit, there was a disused factory being empty for 10 years. So we gave them the money to buy it. They're now <coughs> manufacturing clean rooms, sort of posh porter cabins that go around the world, can be bolted on, complete with the air filtration, everything else. Zero use of fossil fuels on that site or in their products. That's green growth. We're creating thousands of jobs. For every pound I spend, it returns more than three pounds to treasury in payroll taxes alone. That's how you get sustainable green growth. And when we're talking about infrastructure, I'll just very briefly touch on financial infrastructure because that's one of the things that is really needed. <coughs> and... Uh, Talking to uh, pension funds, to asset managers, there is literally trillions out there looking for a home, and we've got to find the investable propositions to do that. We don't have to do it on the basis of taxation. Speaking of taxation, um, nobody can have escaped the... It's called a mini-budget. <laughs> I'd hate to see what the real budget's going to look like. But I've never yet met a business leader who's told me, Jamie, you know what's stopping me growing is the fact that if I make a large profit, I'll have to pay some tax on it. What's stopping them growing is skills, a lack of skilled people. Every single business leader I talk to says that. So that's the infrastructure. And we're doing that. We've got boot camps to train people. We've got a, a just transition fund, two million pounds, so that people can't afford their own skills training. We support them with it. We're doing climate education in schools, where the, in secondary schools, they're working with real engineers on real problems. And in sixth form, they're working with the computer games industry, developing climate simulators, and they're developing real coding skills and work skills that go with it to develop that talent pipeline. And to finish, the... The implied Brexit deal for, for all of those people who, who voted <coughs> is that, well, we will start to take you seriously. We will develop your skills. You will get higher wages. That is not what's happened. That's a massive part of the labor shortage. It's, it's quite obvious to everybody. But there's a very large percentage of people who are suffering with mental ill health who haven't had a great start in life, whose parents have moved around a lot or possibly been in and out of the criminal justice system. And so these kids have not come in with the skills, with the confidence, with the life experience, with the that horrible phrase, social capital, <coughs> to succeed. That's the real infrastructure that we need to get on top of. We've got to start changing things and investing in people and setting them up to succeed rather than fail. That's why zero carbon, <coughs> zero poverty are the same agenda. Thank you so much for that, uh, Jamie. It's, um, it's inspirational. Yeah. And um, I think the great missing um, chunk of the mini-budget was any recognition of the skills and education gap that we face and the constraints that businesses have uh, growing. So um, hopefully we'll discuss this a little bit more uh, as we go through. Um, Paul. Yeah, well, thanks very much, Ruth. As, as Ruth says, I, I do a number of things, but I think much more relevant, relevantly for today, for the past 
uh, two and a half years, I've chaired the Rochdale Development Agency. Uh, and only this month, uh, Andy Burnham appointed me as chair of a new uh, Ma Ma Manchester mayoral development zone uh, called Atom Valley, um, which is a massive uh, scheme. It spans the three boroughs of, borough, of Bury, uh, Rochdale and Oldham. Um, and this, uh, I'm going to quote that, Andy's not here, so I can quote from him. I'm not, <laughs> not greasing up to him. Uh, it says, it's the key, it's the key to unlocking the huge poten economic potential of Greater Manchester as a world leader in research and innovation. Um, it's a pri it's a public private venture. The land's owned by, uh, the, the different bits of land, but it's owned by the private sector and we're working with them, uh, to, uh, to facilitate the creation of this, uh, of this, uh, development zone. And one of, again, one of our key issues is precisely transport links. Uh, there's a motorway goes through it. There's a motorway goes that way, but the rail links are very poor. There's, there's, there's lots of issues around transport. And this, certainly the, uh, the, the private sector involved are, are concerned about this. It is a major issue to, to get some proper green transport, but plan, plans are well advanced on that. Um, just out of interest, it's called Assam Valley Music. Went through a big branding exercise and, uh, and, and Andy had to sign it off, uh, because, um, it's meant to be scientific. It's meant to be innovation. And of course, Manchester is where the atom was first split. I think that's, that's, that's why it's uh, called that. But, uh, uh, that, that's a branding exercise. I'm an economist. I don't know anything about branding. So that's, uh, um, but the point is that the point about it is it's been selected, um, because this is real leveling up. Because these three boroughs are the most deprived in Greater Manchester. And so it's not just talk. It's not just, you know, a few words from central government. Uh, you know, the mayor and the combined authority and the political leadership as a whole in Greater Manchester are committed to leveling up. This is why this has been chosen deliberately to be really high tech and innovative in the most deprived areas of Greater Manchester. Because leveling up can't just be between regions. Everybody, you all know from your own experience, it has to be within city regions. There'll be, there'll be areas in Tyneside that are reasonably well off, areas that are poor. And the same thing for Greater Manchester. And these are the most deprived boroughs. So, I mean, everybody's doing this. I'll just comment myself on the government plans to create subject or enterprise zones with tax breaks. Now, if we're offered that, obviously we're not going to turn it down. Uh, but I think it's not sensible to place too much hope. Um, on these sorts of things. And I think the reason is very simple, that if you are a large firm making a location decision or a major investment decision, the time scale is long. You've got to think about what happens over 10, 20, 30 years when you're making an investment decision or deciding to locate. Tax rates change. In fact, I believe there are some people suggesting that tax rates should change as early as 2024. Uh, so if you're actually doing corporate planning, you don't, you know, these things are neither here nor there. They're, they're marginal in the decisions to actually invest. Um, and as, you, as, as like Jamie was, was essentially, um, suggesting. So we can't place too much hope on that. So, and our strategy again is based upon innovation and technology. Uh, let me just give one. I think this is going to be funded. It's a very simple example in terms of reducing waste. 
Um, there's a, a, a professor of fashion at Manchester Metropolitan University who's now working with uh, scientists who do intelligent machines. Because it turns out when you're doing high fashion, um, even the most expert human cutter, um, you know, there's about 25% of the material that's wasted. But if you use artificial intelligence, you can cut this you know, much closer to zero. And that's just a simple example of how intelligent machines can actually produce the green revolution in terms of actually producing things much more efficiently with much less energy and with much less uh, waste. Um, because I think this is important that it will have to be delivered by technology and intelligent machines. Now, think about could it be delivered by the price mechanism through taxation? through green taxes on, make, on encouraging people to shift away from energy. It's got a role, uh, and I'm an economist, so in general I'm in favour of the price mechanism, but I've said this won't work because we've just, we're, we're living through a massive natural experiment about how people feel in a democracy when energy prices are doubled. They don't like it. They can't be done through the price mechanism because the electorate don't like it. It has to be done through technology and through innovation. That's the only way we'll deliver um, the green uh, future. Net zero uh, can only be delivered uh, in, 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 th in that particular way. And just an example, it has been going on um, that over the last uh, 50 years, um, the energy content of a unit of output in the Western economies has fallen by more than 50%. So technology is already moving in the right direction in terms of reducing energy, and we need to accelerate that through the use of uh, intelligent machines and working at the scientific frontier. And that's what we're trying to do uh, in Atom Valley. Thanks. Thanks, Paul. Hold that over to you. <coughs> Thanks, Ruth. Um, so um, a little of an introduction to ACOM. Um, we are a global infrastructure consultancy organisation with around uh, 7,000 employees in the UK, of whom about 75 are based here in Liverpool, with major regional offices both in uh, Manchester and Newcastle. Um, whether it's Newcastle, Liverpool, Manchester, New York or Sydney, what um, ACOM seeks to do is provide to uh, local authorities communities and corporate organizations solutions to the biggest challenges that they're facing right now and globally the biggest that biggest challenge is clearly um, the climate cha climate challenge what we do is we bring cross-sector solutions so bringing together the solutions uh, for decarbonizing our transport systems such as the Northumberland line <coughs> and um, decarbonizing our our buildings um, to optimize them to work together um, to provide those um, holistic solutions in a way in which our, our grid can manage, manage the additional demand um, and supported by decarbonisation <coughs> of the industrial sector with solutions such as hydrogen also. Globally, 40% of our energy use is in the built environment and around a third of our uh, carbon footprint um, is from, the, from our buildings. So clearly it's an important area to address if we're to achieve net zero goals. And this in two major ways. Uh, first of all, we need to ensure that all of our new buildings are commissioned, designed and operated to deliver net zero buildings. 
Um, and secondly, given that 90% of the buildings which we're going to be um, living in and, and working in um, in 2050 are already here, we need to really invest in decarbonising our existing estate. Fundamentally, that's achieved in two ways. We need to reduce our energy demand um, and we need to electrify our heat sources. <coughs> The energy crisis is really supporting us um, in uh, that re demand reduction and it's also uh, supporting a move to more resilient energy sources. Um, however, um, it is causing a pause in the electrification of, of heat as it's a more expensive way for us to um, heat, up, heat our buildings. Um, we've been doing a lot of work recently um, across Greater Manchester um, with both Bayes and Andy Burnham and his team um looking at um heat mapping of the entire region and how heat networks can support the decarbonization of heat we've developed um a a series of heat networks which can be integrated with low carbon heat sources and reusing low grade heat from industrial processes to provide low carbon heat across the full region Heat networks are expensive and they can't be paid for by the public purse. Um, so we've also been looking at the ways in which those, those heat networks can be commercialised, both with and without the Green Heat Fund. We need to make changes urgently and um, heat networks are notoriously very slow projects um, to deliver as with a lot of our infrastructure projects. <coughs> so again, we've been um, working both national and local level to um, it, with engagement with uh, delivery partners to find partnership solutions whereby we can accelerate the, the delivery of those heat networks. And we believe that we can accelerate that process <coughs> by a full two years through partnership working. Long-term policymaking is a huge uh, factor in the cost of decarbonisation. And our economic modelling shows that we can deliver projects, some of our projects, 40% cheaper where there is a long-term pipeline of around about 10 years. Now, clearly this is a huge challenge in a political <coughs> environment, but it's where the benefit of the mayoral system with the ability to have strong local commitment and policy um, to the decarbonisation agenda makes a real difference. And we can through that commitment, attract private sector investment um, and project delivery, um, supporting our journey. The decarbonisation of buildings at the rate in which it was happening in 2019 would have taken us four centuries to decarbonise to the state we need to be by 2050. <coughs> Quite clearly, it's a huge growth area and we need to be investing to ensure that we continue to um, increase that rate of decarbonisation. That creates a huge skills gap and we need local people to deliver local projects um, in, the, in this exciting area where there's good jobs um, with great prospects and that we know that there is a very long pipeline for delivery so people can build really exciting careers around this decarbonisation programme. We also need to build additional diversity into the workforce um, supporting the journey um, and the advent of a lot more digital tools um, supporting the transition, I'm sure will attract those candidates in and support us in creating additional innovation to, to further accelerate our progress. To achieve net zero, fundamentally, we need to be a more collaborative society. None of us can achieve it um, uh, on our own. We need to work together to create these infrastructure solutions um, and changes in behaviour to support a, a greener, sustainable future.
It's important to remember that it's net zero, it's not absolute zero. Um, and we will achieve that through um, optimization of systems, matching supply and demand to create attractive projects, both technically and economically, um, <clears throat> to deliver the one goal of net zero. And that through this, we can use our, our the UK re regions to demonstrate that pathway and export the UK skills um, globally um, to deliver net zero futures. Thank you very much. So three fascinating uh, contributions from the panel. I'm going to kick off with a couple of questions of my own and then please feel free to, to ask the panellists any questions. And I was going to ask you what you thought about investment zones. So they're clearly the big issue of the moment. Do you agree with Paul that they're sort of uh, at the margin of decision making or do you think a very favourable tax and planning regime could have a big impact? Well, as I mentioned, it's, it's long-term policy, which can make a real difference for bringing that private <coughs> sector um, investment. Um, and I actually think that, um, you know, clearly tax breaks are always beneficial. But, you know, the institutional investors are looking for 20 to 30-year investment programs. Um, and therefore, it's around developing projects which are affordable in their own in their own rights um, for delivery and offer that um, return on investment, and and you know we're in a society where societies really cares um, about um, our climate challenges and are looking for really low returns on investment. So we need to be making sure that we're capitalising on that to deliver um, these major infrastructure projects rather than um, on the enterprise zones whereby potentially there's <coughs> fluctuation um, in the tax incentives as, as time progresses. So it's the lack of stability, do you think, um, and permanence, particularly of the tax incentives that are likely to be a constraint? Yeah, that's. I mean, in terms of bringing in that private sector mm. investment, I think it's it's all about that those, those long-term local policies and i think you know it, it's one of the key advantages of the the mayoral systems that you can build that real momentum around a particular region um and work with the private sector within the region um to to attract that finance because there's a clear pathway uh, and jamie have you been named at Tyneside as one of the um locations we, we are in discussions in discussions with government and uh, how are you thinking about that uh, it's interesting, isn't it? So, yeah, it was announced that uh, we're all in discussions. There was a, a message came through. Would you like to talk to us about this? Yeah, of course, I'll talk to you. Next thing you know, we are in discussions. There will be one in the north of time. Um, I have had a meeting with the Secretary of State about it. Um, Helen is and Paul, absolutely correct. Um, what businesses want is stability. Is it, can anyone conceive of a time that's been less stable than we're in now? Wars, potential ex escalating to nuclear war, uh, global pandemics, supply chains shortening, and it's if we if we're going to encourage people to take, particularly the large institutional investors, hundreds of millions of pounds to start investing, they they're going to want to be pretty sure they're going to get it back at the end, and the, there's no need to be offering thirty percent returns on anything. All they want is a safe place to put their money, given that two thirds of it is in bonds, um, which are. Um, yielding a lot less than inflation. Uh, so it is, it's that long term. I was talking the, about these investment zones and saying that, as I said, no business leader has ever said <coughs> to me, I'm not investing because if I'm very profitable, I'll have to pay some tax. 
um, and I think perhaps in the arguments when we're talking to the public, we should reinforce the fact you only pay corporation tax after you've made a profit and, and offset everything else. It's not like your personal taxes, where you only, wouldn't it be great if you only paid income tax on your disposable income? That, that's not how it works. Um, so I was talking to them, one of the things that would make more of a difference is if we could accelerate land assembly, which is often a massive bar barrier. Mm. Um, and if you had, in a mayoral development corporation, um, it requires the local authority consent and it requires the mayor's consent. So you already have a double democratic lock and mayors have CPO powers. Someone told me, he said, look, if you want to do one, do it, start it the day you're elected and it might just be finished by the end of your term. The money's gone by then. You can't keep investors hanging around for that long. So I suggested, why don't we do it so that if the mayor, the local authority do it, and if somebody objects, the Secretary of State decides rather than going through the courts, and then we can accelerate it. Uh, people are still getting a fair price. They just can't ransom you. Um, and government said, yeah, all right, we are looking at that. We're listening. <clears throat> um, that's the sort of thing that's going to make more of a difference than anything else is local discretion on regulations, not deregulation across the board, because I don't want, and, and said to government, as did a number of the mayors, as did Andy, if this is going to be about eroding workers' rights, if this is going to be about eroding my environmental protections, we, we're not interested. It's got to be about sustainable growth. Great, thanks. Any questions from the floor? Yes, front row. Uh, Jonathan Shaw, Chatham and Ailes with the CLP. I work in Jonathan Shaw. Great technical skills. Um, Jonathan Shaw, uh, Chatham and Aylesford CLP. I work in FE and good to hear you talk about uh, skills. Um, I wonder if, if the panel like to comment about, um, um, you know, the, the supply of skills, particularly, you know, apprenticeship levels are down. Uh, there's a lot of discussion around the levy um, and also adult skills, which doesn't get uh, much of a conversation. Uh, but again, the investment in adult education is is down. So, so comments on some skills would be welcome. And finally, um, you know, how can we spend money differently? If you can imagine, right, we're going to hear from Rachel Reeves uh, later. And when one thinks about the note, the famous note that Liam Byrne left saying <laughs> the money's all run out, or perhaps when um, yeah. uh, Pat McFadden arrives, he'll see mm. the red <clears throat> credit card bill. You know, uh, because not only the money's not there, actually you're in debt uh, uh, as well. So how would we spend money differently? Rachel Rees is perhaps not going to give you any more money, uh, uh, Jamie, but so how, and Paul, how would you spend money differently? And finally, a point about pension funds. How many times have I heard that over the years? Pension funds want to invest. Well, what's stopping them? Does the panel know? Can they enlighten us? Wonderful questions, Jonathan. Um, Paul, do you want to kick off? Uh, yeah, well, on, on, I, uh, we're making, uh, we've already set up a, a skills subcommittee to, to, to actually action this, uh, which is headed by, uh, is chaired and vice chaired by the principals of two of the local further education colleges. Because if you look at the jobs that are going to, that will be created, the, if you like at the top level, um, you know, the, the, the elite level of jobs, the market will not just be national, but international. Um, now it might, you know, now that's good in a sense because, um, it will help with graduate retention in these three boroughs because we do have a big problem. It's common to many deprived areas that, you know, people go off to good universities and they never come back. So at least some of them could come back there. 
But the main thing will be the most of the jobs will require technical skills because it's going to be on advanced machinery, advanced materials, and there'll be a whole series of technical level jobs. So what we're doing, uh, what we're doing, uh, working with the, uh, actually the National Physical Laboratories, probably something most people never heard of, and I hadn't until about a year ago, but it's a massive research institute with like a thousand people who do really advanced uh, you know, you know, like below, you know, in the trenches, you know, scientific research that you never see. Um, that was, I mean, I'm not, uh, uh going back, this is going back, show my age. Uh, apparently that's where the, uh, the dam busters bomb was invented. So they do, you know, they, they do all sorts of innovative things. I think they still do it. You know, I've had a, I had a, I had a trip round. So working with them. And so what we want to produce, um, is not just, uh, uh, we want to produce an innovation roadmap. For them to look and see what they see, that how they see the technologies evolving, and then the further education colleges working with them to note the skills gaps, and they can start to provide it uh, with the the courses. Um, so let's have not just a, a technology roadmap or just or just develop skills in general. Let's try and do it in a purposeful way in what we're calling an innovation roadmap, bringing together the technology and bringing together the. Uh, the further education colleges. Now, I'm happy to come back on your other questions, but that was quite a long answer initially. So, give, <laughs> yeah. all right, thanks, Paul. Um, apprenticeships. One of the biggest challenges is when you look at apprenticeship numbers. It's how few people who start apprenticeships complete <clears> them, <throat> and sadly, it's not the case that they get halfway through and they get offered a full-time job usually. Um, so we've got an apprenticeship hub. We're working directly with people to make sure they get some wraparound support and those apprenticeships aren't a, there you go, kid, that's an apprenticeship because you have to, otherwise you get no benefits and, um, you're left on your own. So it is actually about supporting people in every way. Um, and skills is very much about the inclusivity angle as well. So we have specific programs to help people with neurodiversity, people who are in social housing who might be at risk of not paying their bills. We'll help them identify uh, with a bespoke program that will get them on the ladder to getting and earning a good living. And a well-paid job with trade union terms and conditions is about the best thing you can do for anybody mm. because they will sort themselves out and a whole swathe of social problems disappear if people have money in their pockets. Um, and we have a whole digital program. We're creating thousands of jobs in this area. Um, we've actually been almost over-successful because I brought all these companies here. Um, and, uh, and we've now got to make sure that, that they turn into long-term jobs. Um, on the pension fund side of it, um, one of the things that would make more difference than anything else is obviously any pension fund or any asset has a fiduciary duty to maximize returns. And it would be about widening the <coughs> scope of those returns. And we are in discussions with some of them who want to do this, and it's trying to find a mechanism whereby they can. So one of the most obvious ones would be to fund a load of social housing, which is an asset value, low rents coming in. It's enough. It's stable. It, it covers covers what's needed. Um, but we would also want to include a bit of a homes first policy in that. We would want to be encouraging um, proper community facilities in that. Well, it's about finding a way where you can wrap that into it without anybody, any shareholder at some future point, um, carpet bagger type coming in and saying, look, you've broken the law, you're not allowed to do it. Um, and any government changes in regulation that allowed us to do that would be a massive help. I'll give you one little example because I, I'm firmly of the opinion that unless we get significant 
fiscal freedoms in devolved areas, this will not happen, certainly not in the time frame that's needed. So if you give mayors the powers to regulate the private rented sector, then I could say, right, anyone who owns more than five properties, um, you must have class A insulation uh, on all of your properties. Um, or class B if it's an old single skin wall, whatever. You'd, you'd work it out in a detailed way. And I will give you the money up front so that there's no cash flow problems, no one's going to struggle, and secure it with a charge on the property. That would allow us, all the things that Helena was talking about, about retrofit, well, if that tap gets turned on, and there's about 140,000 properties in need of priority retrofit in the north of time, and if government gives us the money, there aren't the, the skilled people there. There isn't the supply chain there. You could not ramp it up. Then we did a big piece of analysis that said it would take about 2027 to reach full capacity. But at the moment, it's not happening at all. And if I could prime that with just 10,000 properties a year, well, you would have a nascent industry there. You would have some skilled people there. And it's much easier to go from 1,000 workers to 3,000 workers than it is to go from no workers to 3,000 workers. So that's the sort of thing that would ramp up the move towards <coughs> zero carbon buildings. Mm. Uh, very interesting. And just on the pension fund uh, point, um, North American pension funds can invest in all of these sorts of things. British pension funds have technical reasons why it's very, very difficult to do so. So policy exchange, it's one of our key interests, is looking at how to unlock that pension capital uh, going forward so we really can mobilise um, private sector public and private sector money into uh, into infrastructure projects. Uh, really necessary, I, I think. And Helena, I don't know if you want to comment on that or on other issues. Um, yeah, br briefly on that point. I mean, what we are seeing um, here in the UK is that there is huge private sector investment in, in the solar market um, right now. Um, um, so we've got a pos really positive example there. It is much more challenging when it comes to um, individual buildings to get the institutional investment and, and the payback because behavioural change can have just as much of an impact on the, the heat being used by buildings um, um, as, as the um, solutions which we're implementing and therefore it's really hard to measure the impact. So that's one of the, the key challenges that um, we need to face um, which isn't affected in the same way in, for heat networks because obviously it's serving whole areas and therefore that behavioural impact um, has a much much smaller um, it's much it's, it's easier to measure the the, the impacts. Um, I really want to talk there about um, the the skills shortage, um, and I think one of the big challenges that we face is that the industry is seen as being quite inaccessible. We use a lot of technical language whenever we're referring to sustainable futures, and um, I think as a result, people know that they they have an interest in it. They sort of feel like they would like to contribute to it, but actually they feel like they're, they're starting from, from a low starting point relative to the general conversation. And I think that collectively we need to um, simplify the language that we're using often to explain what is fundamentally you know, a, a simple problem that we're all engaging with um, on a day-to-day -day basis to support people in moving into the industry. And I see this um, you know, across the markets where, where we're working, that people 
you know, come to us and, and are looking for a decarbonisation solutions, but they almost start apologetically that they feel they should be further ahead. And I think it's a lot ahead. And I think it's a lot the same with the, the workforce that they feel like, you know, <coughs> there's already people who've been working in this subject for such a long time. I can't, I can't retrain. And actually we go through a process of sort of supporting them to understand that yes, there are some people in the, in those boats, but yeah, we've all got transferable skills which can support us um, in playing in a really important role um, in the industry. Any other questions? Yes, one at the very back. Hello, my name is Catherine Kennett. I'm from the Chartered Insurance Institute. Would you um, mind just speaking a little louder? Sorry, I'm Catherine Kennett. I'm from the Chartered Insurance Institute. Um, it's more to do um, with what Helena was saying. Um, and my question is... Um, with your views on tackling problems with um, decarbonisation for new houses, um, how will you look at tackling the problems of cladding and decarbonisation? Thank you. Cladding, Helena. <laughs> well, it's a, a hot topic, um, as, especially after uh, this, this weekend's uh, tragic news. Um, um, I mean, Cladding is quite clearly a fundamental part of um, the the journey to lower energy homes, um, and you know, individual dwellings need really different solutions to to blocks of flats. But fundamentally, we need to be improving the the, the thermal performance of all of these buildings. Now, traditionally. Um, um, particularly social housing flats are a really hard place to improve because you want to do a program across a full block and there's two problems with that. One, that you get mixed levels of engagement. Some people want the works to be undertaken and some people don't. We don't have this issue um, <coughs> when, it, when it's cladding. Um, um, but, and you also have the, the issue around um, minimising embodied carbon and only undertaking works whereby um, the existing systems are already life expired because our carbon budget isn't just around operational carbon. We need to be including all of our embodied carbon also. So, so fundamentally, you know, Im improving the cladding ought to be um, an easy win. Um, however, it comes down to the ways in which we measure that, that, um, that heat the heat usage um, within a lot of our, our buildings makes it really hard to see the benefits of the investment. They're really long-term benefits. There's health benefits. You know, there's, there's, the social value benefits are, are huge, but in, in a way which we find quite hard to quantify because they're over that much longer period. Okay. I think there was a question. Well, there's a question from the gentleman there. Thank you. Hi there, uh, Martin Hyde from Aluminium Package and Recycling Organisation. Um, so I just wanted to pick up on on net zero um, and going back to the theme of going local, because I think when we talk <coughs> about net zero, we tend to focus a lot on the energy reductions, which is obviously a massive part, um, but we don't tend to focus so much on the emissions side of things. Um, sorry, in the um, the offset side of the of the emissions. Um, one concern I have is that we seem to be increasingly offsetting our emissions by exporting overseas, so <coughs> overseas emission um, offsets, which some of them are not only quite mixed, but quite often in countries which tend to be the most highly impacted by climate change. Um, what I'd like to know really is what the panel's thoughts are on going more local with offsets and what we can do to try and... Um, increase UK carbon offsetting rather than relying on overseas in what I guess could be argued is carbon imperialism? Mm, very, very interesting question. I don't know if the panellist wants to take this question and then also take the opportunity 
to have some final thoughts before we uh, before we wind up the session. Um, Paul. Well, I think um, I mean in, I think on localism in general, um, you know, it can be it's it's attractive. Um, and it's something which, you know, obviously has to be followed, you know, but we do get benefits overall from trade. So, so let's say in Rochdale, we don't just, Esther, it's very, un well, Liverpool is very unnerving, <laughs> you know, very unnerving. <laughs> so we, we have, we, we, we have to do that. So yes, I think that, you know, this is, this is just a short answer because we're in a short of time. You say, look, yeah, localism, yes. But we have to recognise we do live in a global economy, um, and providing we get, uh, you, know, uh, you know, assurances on this, I, I, I do, t I do understand your point. Um, but we can't just do it. I mean, localism won't do the trick. We've got to think of it on a much bigger scale. Thanks, thanks, Paul, Jamie. Thank you. What Martin's question raises is um, perhaps not everybody knows what scope three emissions are. Those which include a lot of the embodied carbon um, and. Britain's doing terrifically well because a load of that stuff's made it well because a load of that stuff's made in China, but the emissions are still produced in all of the things that, that end up being consumed in this country. And this raises a question about growth. And many will have heard those in some in the environmental movement calling for degrowth. Growth at its most basic level is just more money changing hands in economic activity. That need not be people buying bigger flasher cars. We need not become addicted to consumerism the way that, frankly, we are. And we're bombarded with that, orders of magnitude greater than we're bombarded with even the culture was, never mind serious political debate. It's every advert you see, from kids onwards, the <coughs> McDonald's Happy Meals, it's all about consume, consume, consume. It need not be like that. We can still have growth and invest in better mental health services, better education, public luxury, libraries with great computer suites, um, <coughs> the more activities in performing arts and music, that can still be growth that does not destroy the planet. <coughs> That's, I think, where we've got to get to. And uh, that is definitely not the ideology of the current government. Who remembers the Peppa Pig speech? Yeah, I was there in the room about this far away from Mr. Johnson at that point when he lost his way in his speech and, oh, forgive me, forgive me. It was the last time he showed contrition about anything, actually. Um, <laughs> and he said, uh, governments only have billions, the private sector has trillions, but what will make a difference is consumer choice. We can't, the, the cycle time of that is wrong. That is people develop products, market them, produce them, develop the supply chains. Then <coughs> people think, oh, I'll take a slightly lower carbon option. We can't, we haven't got time for that. For 2030, certainly, never mind even 2050. Uh, so we've got to get towards quality of life, not being seen as on your own, in your own home, buying more stuff. Thank you. And uh, last word to Helena. Yeah, I'm going to give a slightly technical answer, I'm afraid. Um, so the, the gold standard um, for measurement of, of uh, net zero within, within any footprint um, is science-based targets. And um, the requirements of science-based targets have changed recently so that it can only look at um, on-site generation. Um, you can't have your exported carbon, carbon credits. Um, but there's a real challenge with that. So to the, the latest standards for buildings, um, the, the, you know, what we're, we're trying to achieve essentially 
if you have a single story building and cover the roof with PV, your annual generation <coughs> will meet the energy requirements for a, for a single floor. Now, most of our buildings aren't single floor, so we can't rely um, on solar panels on roofs. And we're a relatively speaking small island. We don't have um, um, endless space for installing um, uh, solar farms and, and wind farms. Uh, obviously, we have the, the, the tidal options and the um, offshore generation as well. Um, but realistically, we're not going to be able to provide holistic solutions just within um, within our own footprints. Um, but there is a very important point around the quality of offsets. Um, and I think there is a lot of ongoing policy work right now um, to assess some of the accreditation which has happened historically um, to ensure that we're investing in truly sustainable offset credits. So absolutely supportive of achieving as much as we can locally, but recognise that actually we are going to have to look outside of our boundaries also. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much to our panel for um, superb contributions this morning. Thank you all very much for attending this policy exchange event. Hope to see you again. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please rate us, leave a review and share it with your friends and colleagues. I'll be back soon with the next episode of Talking Infrastructure. Until then, take care and goodbye.